We are doing a sermon series. Today was going to be the last one, actually, but I've decided to add an extra one in. So um, this is not the last one in this series. And it's a series is Where Do We Grow From Here? Uh, uh, just a, a reminder, Ken Benjamin, who is the minister of Chichester Baptist Church, Chichester Baptist Church, uh, is currently the Baptist Union's president, just for the year. And each president brings along their own particular teaching. And his teaching, his question for the churches, the Baptist churches in the UK is, where do we grow from here? And we've been looking at that question in a kind of a, a roundabout sort of way over the last uh, six weeks, uh, really. And uh, what the sort of things we've been looking at is, first one was moving the goalpost, recognising that society is not in the same place it was 50 or so years ago, and therefore we need to adapt uh, as a church. We looked at, not so much the practice, but the principles of mission. Uh, we looked at, we, about we need to be bold in our experiments, we need to risk failure for the sake of getting the gospel out there. Uh, we talked about, uh, looked at Paul saying he was convinced and compelled, convinced by the love of Christ, shown through his death on the cross, uh, and therefore compelled to go out and tell people uh, about that love. Uh, last week, uh, we were looking at where do we grow from here. You know what? I can't remember what the sermon was, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you can. I've got this thing. Once I've done it, it's done. It's gone. I'll move on to the next one. And, uh, and this week it is On Our Watch. That is the name of this week's sermon, On Our Watch. In a moment we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 to 9. So you might want to grab a Bible or open that up in your Bible. It's in the Old Testament somewhere after Psalms. It's sort of in the middle and then go to the right a little bit. I'm going to find it now because otherwise I'm not going to find it later. After Jeremiah, Ezekiel chapter 33. Like Toby, I was a secondary school teacher. And uh, during my time as a secondary school teacher, three times I got to go on holidays abroad. Not holidays, trips abroad. <laughs> it wasn't holidays because we took 40 11 to 13-year-old kids uh, with us. And what we'd do, we'd get on a coach at Kesgrave and we'd take the journey to... The first one was Switzerland, the second one was France, and the third one was Austria... Switzerland took about 19 hours on the coach. Austria took 24 hours on the coach. And I can't remember exactly how long it took us to get to France, but it would have been slightly less than Switzerland. Uh, And uh, the first time I went, oh, dear me, it's like 19 hours. And I remember just struggling the whole way. I tried to get a bit of sleep, but I was curled up on a seat. The kids kept walking by and hitting my legs. There was noise. And I was just, you just get to Switzerland, you just feel a complete state. So the next time when we went to France, I came prepared. So I got on the coach, I went straight to the back, all those naughty kids that normally take the the back row, op it, this is mine. I took sleeping bag, pillow, ear plugs, and a thing that goes over your face, so you you got night mask thing. When I got to Calais, we got to Calais, got off the ferry, got on the coach, I popped a couple of night holes, Eight hours later, woke up at French Alps. Kids were like, oh, sir, you were asleep for ages. I reckon about eight or nine hours I was out for. The problem was, I was supposed to be looking after kids. And as the three other teachers were like looking absolutely bedraggled and, you know, (laughs) bags under their eyes. The kids were an absolute nightmare. And I just slept the entire time. 
See, my responsibility was to keep an eye out for those kids, to be on watch. And yet I just had a nice, lovely sleep across the back seat of the coats. See, on our watch, it's usually a military term, where um, if you're in an encampment or you're in a city and you're, there's a possibility of you being attacked, you assign someone or, or some people to be watchmen, to be watch persons, to keep an eye out, particularly through the night, but all the time, day and night, to watch out for the enemy's attack. And this is such an important role that if you fell asleep while on watch in the British Army, for example, a few hundred years ago, that would have been seen as a dereliction of duty and you would have been shot for it. Because if you're not watching properly, if you're not taking your responsibility serious enough, not only could it cost you your life, but it could cost you the life of all the people that you're keeping watch for. Incredibly serious job. Now we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 to 9. In the NIV it has the title, Ezekiel, a watchman. Okay, That's just what NIV has come up to describe this particular passage. So words, have you got them, Sue? Excellent. Here we go. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone, thank you David, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do not warn the wicked person to turn from their ways and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you you yourself will be saved. Hmm, interesting words there. And possibly like me, you might look at that and go, okay, uh, straight away you're thinking, how do I apply that to my context? Because that's what sermon is, isn't it? It's taking something that's written thousands of years ago and applying it to that today. And you might think, aha, I know what that means. Basically, the church is the watchman and we need to tell the rest of the society out there they're going to die unless they come to Jesus. We don't see this really anymore, do we? People walking around with the end is nigh on sandwich boards. But have you think, okay, it's the church that is on guards, warning of impending doom. But is that really what this passage is telling us this morning? Let's delve a little bit deeper. Let's find a little bit about who Ezekiel was and who Jesus was, um, God was talking about when he was telling Ezekiel that he was going to be a watchman. 
See, Ezekiel was a prophet. Originally trained as a priest. We don't know a huge amount about Ezekiel, but he probably uh, trained as a priest. Uh, but he became a prophet to the people. And the people of Judah, and uh, Judah beca- uh, ended up being invaded, defeated by the Babylonians. And they attacked Jerusalem, where they lived. And they took out a whole load of the sort of the cream of the crop, the best of the best, and took them 500 miles away to the Babylonian city, Babylon. Babylon, not Babylon. Ezekiel went along with this group, along with others, like Daniel. You can read the story of Daniel and, and how he survived and, and flourished in that environment in Babylon. But Ezekiel was called to be a prophet to that battered remnant who were exiled, taken 500 miles of their home to a place that was completely unfamiliar to them. He is there to be a, a watchman, to warn them of impending doom. It's the warning that actually things are probably going to get worse unless you get yourself sorted now. He's basically addressing a nation, the nation of Israel or Judah and the Jews that were in moral and spiritual decline. Also, they were suffering from just a theological meltdown. Everything that was their strong foundation that they were God's people and that God would rescue them and that God was centred in the temple in Jerusalem, all of those walls, all those foundations had been completely knocked out from under, under them. They were completely shaken. What they saw around them, the fact that this, rem- this people had been taken to exile, and the rest, that would happen to the rest of Jerusalem as well, just completely shook them, because that's not how things should be. They looked at their context, and it didn't make sense in light of the gods that they worshipped and yet God is saying look it's not my fault and you can't really blame the Babylonians I've been warning you time and time again through not just Ezekiel but all the other prophets that this was going to happen therefore this is on your heads so you've got two responsibilities here the responsibility of the prophets, the watchmen to warn the people but also the responsibility of the people to heed the warning and do something about it now the role of the prophets was to give God's warning to who? in the majority of cases Israel, God's people Okay, there's a few other, you know, Jonah ended up going to uh, Nineveh and he wasn't very happy about it. But most of the time, these prophets were there to warn God's people. Now who, if you know your Bible and your New Testament, is God's people now? Us. So if you want to draw a parallel, the parallel is not the end is nigh, we are announcing to the rest of the world they need to get themselves sorted. Actually, the watchmen are the watchmen of the church warning God's people, the church, that you need to get things sorted, otherwise you are going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. And this isn't God's fault. This isn't the world out there's fault. This is on you. So that was the context of Ezekiel. Let's think about our concept context a bit. That's Ezekiel, by the way. I don't think it's a photo, but um, that's Ezekiel. So what's our context now as a church in the UK? In the last 100 years, we have seen significant decline in church attendance and our knowledge and adherence to the Christian faith. 
We are in a, in a stage now where most of the kids in this country do not know who Jesus is. But they might have heard it was a baby at Christmas. Just a couple of charts, and you may not be able to see them, but I can explain them to you. This is a trend of UK church attendance since 1980, uh, and then uh, to, to today, really. Uh, and you can see the, the pink line uh, is the church attendance in percent. So it's gone from uh, in nationally 1980, just over 50%, down to less than 40%. And then the blue line is the average age of those that are attending. It's gone from being on average sort of 37, 36, and it's now gone up to about 57. So basically what it's saying is, since 1980, we haven't really gained many new people. And the people in the church have just got older. And therefore, the average age has gone up. Here's another chart, chart, chart which you probably won't be able to see at all, but just to describe it. This is what this chart has done. It's called UK Church Membership Percentage Change 2008 to 2020. And it's looking at the different denominations and seeing, okay, how has membership changed? So the one on the that side, your left, is all the churches. So we've seen between um, 2008 and 2013 a 5% drop in church attendance. That's increased to 7% uh, drop uh, between 2013 and 2019-20. And then the other ones, Baptists have followed, 9% drop, Catholics 13% drop, Methodists 15 to 19% drop, Presbyterians, 20 to 24% drop. Things aren't looking good, are they? Now, the ones on the up, you probably can't see those, but the, ones on the, the two on the right are Orthodox and Pentecostal. They've seen massive growth. Why do you reckon that's probably happened? Immigration. It's not like suddenly we've converted loads of people to the Orthodox Church. Actually, we've had a big influx of Eastern Europeans uh, who have really grown these Orthodox church. In, in Luton, where I was, there was a church growing, a Romanian Orthodox church, that was uh, planted in uh, an Anglican church that used the church in the afternoon. It was way bigger than the church uh, uh, congregation that had been planted uh, into. And Pentecostals, similar sort of situation, although Pentecostals are probably doing a lot of work in terms of mission. They're a really, real vibrant church uh, as well. But the one on the three on, in from the right, nine to 10% is new churches. See, new churches are doing something which is different than all of the other traditional um, denominations that actually is creating growth. If I just say that, fre- that the fastest growing churches in the UK at this moment are the Romanian patriarchate, the Romanian churches, they've gone up massively, but they are beaten by something called Fresh Expressions Church. Any idea what Fresh Expressions churches are? Basically, the Anglican churches a while ago decided to start churches that were fresh expressions of our Christian faith, that didn't conform any longer to maybe the, the way we had done church in the past. And you've got churches cropping up, funded by the Anglican church, who are doing church differently, and they have more than doubled in growth. They have grown massively. So what is this saying? First of all, people know little about Jesus in our nation. 
traditional forms of church have failed to adapt and evolve to the society around us. We talked about that in moving the goalposts. And actually, in reality, in this country, Christianity is dying out. That's what the statistics tell us. Well, they do say lies, lies and statistics. But the statistics are telling us that Christianity is dying out in this country. And actually, where it's growing is people are coming in with their faith into this country. We need to take responsibility for this. This is not God's fault, although God is in control. And a lot of Ezekiel is saying that God is in control. We'll talk about that in a minute. This is not society's fault. See, Jesus said to his disciples, you go and make disciples and tell the nations about me. He did not say, he did not appear to everyone else and say, right, you lot, come and hear about me. The gospel imperative is on us. So we cannot sit here and going, well, it's their own fault, isn't it? They're not coming in here, they're not hearing the good news, therefore on their heads be it. The gospel imperative is on us to go out and tell the nations about Jesus and disciple them and help them to grow in their faith. For whatever reason, either we have not been watchful as a church over the last 100 years or we have not listened to the warnings that have come from the watchmen about our decline. And there are numerous reasons which I'm not going to go into now about why we have seen this decline, but the reality is there is a decline, and for whatever reason, we have not dealt with it effectively enough. On our watch, we have failed in our responsibility. Depressing, isn't it? Just like those Israels were rocked to their theological core, you know, saying, this is not right. The God we believe in is on our side and we have been just taken out of our homes and our homes have been destroyed. That doesn't fit. And surely we must be shaken theologically and saying, God, this doesn't make sense. If you're the God of the universe, then why are we struggling so much? And even if you look at the worldwide picture of Christianity where there is enormous growth, the growth of Christianity is not keeping up with the growth of the world population. This should be really ringing alarm bells about the God that we worship. And yet I believe there is hope, which it may not look like from that picture. But I'll come to that uh, now. See, in Ezekiel, I'm just going to read to you Ezekiel uh, 36 and verses 26 to 28. See, God is not finished. This is what he says to Ezekiel. I will give you, this is talking to, the, to the, his people, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I remo- will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God's. See, God is saying, despite your failings, despite your difficulties, despite you not doing what I asked you to do, because of my love for you, I will take action and I will restore you. And he goes on to uh, 
gives this vision to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel sees this valley full of dry bones, bones with absolutely no life in them whatsoever, just a cross where, as far as the eye can see. And this is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. That word breath can also be the word spirit as well. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. See, God is saying to this broken nation, that because of my love for you, I will take action, I will breathe my spirit into you and I will give you life. You are dry, broken bones with no life in it at the moment, but I will restore you. <clears throat> and Ezekiel goes, in to get, goes on to see this picture of these bones becoming human beings again and forming a great army, given life because of God's spirit, God's breath in them. We know that because of Jesus, we have God's Spirit within us. That we can have life because God's Spirit changes us. And because of that, we have hope. See, I believe, if you want to know the direction we are going in as a church, then I'll tell you now, we are going in the direction as a church where we are going to be just bringing the Holy Spirit in as much as we can into every part of who we are and what we do. We're going to fuel missions flame with love and the Holy Spirit and go out there empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, we are just a bunch of dry bones. We are lifeless. But with the Holy Spirit, with God's breath within us, not only do we become alive, but we become an army that can go out there, united and full of God's Spirit and who can change this world. The question is, are we willing to accept that? Because we can have God's Spirit, but we can't, not all of us are full of God's Spirit because we shut Him out and we push it down. And our fears and the various other strongholds in our lives stop God from operating and bring true life to our bones. That's the direction we're going in as a church where we will see more and more of the Holy Spirit empowering us and changing us, the more and more we will be stepping out in mission, not just to speak the gospel, but to show the gospel. In love and good works, but also in miraculous powers as well. I believe this is possible because through God, everything is possible. There is hope. Because of revival. That's what revival is. When you revive someone, you, blow, yeah, if you go boom, 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 blow your breath into them, hopefully they're revived. That's what God wants to do with us. We talk about revival as if somehow we're going to open the doors and thousands of people are going to become flooding in. That's not revival. Revival's got nothing to do without there. It's to do with in here. God reviving us by blowing his spirit, his breath into us so that we can go out as an army and tell people about Jesus Christ. 
So we need to open our eyes and see what God is doing. In my sabbatical, I had an opportunity to go around to different churches and see what they were doing. There was amazing stuff happening out there. There was amazing stuff happening in here as well. If you're at the AGM meeting on Wednesday night, I know a lot of people were just really positive and excited at the end of the meeting because there was great stuff happening here. God's Spirit is moving and shaping us and empowering us. And we should praise God and be thankful. But we must not fall into the trap where we think, okay, we're doing really well. They're all rubbish out there. Therefore, we can settle. Actually, we are involved. Toby talked about there's one church. There's lots of churches. If one part of the body hurts, then we all hurt. We don't sit there and go, great, we're sorted, we're okay, thank you very much, let's just carry on as we are. Our role, our mission is to transform the world. We may start in our little patch, but actually we're part of a worldwide church that is called to, to bring hope to this world. So lastly, as we come to a close, a practical application. I'm just going to read you, first of all, a passage from 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. I'm just asking this question, okay, what does this look like? How do we start this journey of uh, being watchmen, but also listening to the warnings and being changed to our world? Well, 2 Timothy says this. This is Paul's words to Timothy, a young church leader. It says this, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardships. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Not much, is it? In some ways, you could argue this is my role and the leadership role of this church. To speak the truth, even if you lot don't want to always hear it. My job is to see this church be who God wants it to be, to go in the direction God wants it to go. Am I always going to get that right? Yes. I mean, no. I'm not always going to get that right. But that is my aim. That is my purpose in being here, to take us on a journey. If you thought I was going to come here and just keep everything the same, then you are seriously mistaken. Because otherwise I wouldn't have come. I'm here to bring change and move us on. Because we know, as in the UK, the churches, for whatever reason, have failed in their task. I don't mean that as a condemnation. I just mean that's the truth. That's the truth. And if I can play a small part in trying to turn that around, then I feel that is what I am called to do. And will everyone like that? No. But that is what I'm called to do. More is placed, more responsibility is placed on me to be a watchman than on the average person. Because it says it in the Bible, which is a bit harsh, really, but never mind. But if you're just sitting there thinking, great, Martin's got it covered, then tough. Because there's these words from James, chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. My brothers and sisters, that's everyone else. 
If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So the job of being a watchman, of warning, is not just my job. The, the job of speaking truth into people's life is not just something that happens on a Sunday morning when I give my sermon or whoever else is preaching. This is about you and the relationships you have with other Christians to speak truth into their life. If you see them doing something which is going to send them off in a funny direction or just plain stupid, because we do stupid things, it is your duty to gently show them the right path. Now that does not mean we go around condemning people. And this is a real difficult balance to get, isn't it? Between speaking truth in love and actually just being really annoying and picky. And I, and I, but regardless of whether you manage to get that right, there's a responsibility, of, there's a responsibility on us to speak the truth. But actually also there's a responsibility on us to hear the truth and to accept it. And that can be really difficult. I hate being told what to do. And I hate being told that I'm wrong. But you know what? Sometimes I need to be told what to do. And sometimes I do get it wrong. Not often. But <laughs> at least I got, I got a lot more things wrong in my last church. Admittedly, I haven't been here as long. But I've, I'm starting to learn from my mistakes. But sometimes I need to be told. And I need to have the humility to hear that. And even if my first reaction might be, hmm, not happy, stomp my feet. Actually, most of the time I then step back and go, you know what, actually, you got something there. Some of us are great at telling everyone else what they're doing is wrong. That's not right. But also, many of us are really bad at accepting what people tell us is true. We need to be able to learn how to do those things well and lovingly. We need to learn to speak the truth, to ask difficult questions. Because the danger is we can think about discipleship, and well, that just means learning lots of more knowledge about God. And in our relationships, we just keep it superficial. You know, we can have a tea and coffee afterwards and just ask how your week's been and leave it at that. As you know, if we want to see change, if we want to see the church being who it's called to be and you being who God called you to be, then we need to start asking some deep questions, some probing questions and some difficult questions. You know, what has God been doing in your life this week? Where have you stepped out of your comfort zone and done something for Jesus this week? What is God teaching you at the moment? Yeah, what have you read recently in the Bible that's really made you think, oh, yeah. So you don't expect to get fit without going to the gym. And yet you expect me to go to the gym once a week because you wonder why your muscles aren't getting bigger. My job is not to help you to grow. Well, it is, sort of. But don't expect me to go to the gym for you and do my Bible studies and prepare this. And expect yourself to grow because of it. You have a duty. And sometimes you need to ask those difficult questions. And sometimes you won't know the answer. But then you think about it. Oh, actually, yeah, God is teaching me something. Or maybe you might be challenged to think, I can't remember the last time God taught me something. 
And that's when you need to do something and change. I want to say these words. Not on our watch. I don't want to see this church decline. I don't want to see this church become inward. I don't want to see you not walking on the path that God has for you. Not on my watch. And I need you to say, not on our watch. Actually, you can say it. Not on our watch. We're going to be, take responsibility, unlike me on that coach journey, to be awake and to keep our eyes and ears open. To speak the truth. To hear the truth. And to move on in our journey.